Yes, that's a major theme in the book is transforming yourself into a superior observer of people. And I mean this, that this is probably one of the most important life skills that you can develop it. Consider it as important as your chemistry class or your English paper is learning to observe people. And that is not nearly as easy as you think, because when you're interacting with your friends or whomever, you're normally listening to this kind of monologue inside of yourself, or you're absorbed in your your smartphone and you're thinking your own thoughts. And if you really honestly spent half an hour next time you're you're interacting with friends or whomever, actually trying to observe them without hearing that interior monologue, you will be shocked at what you will you will glean from that. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Up Podcast. The voice you heard at the top of the show was the Robert Greene, author of such masterpieces as 48 Laws of Power, 33 Strategies of War, Mastery, and his latest book, The Laws of Human Nature. I've been awaiting this one for quite a while, and Robert is one of those guys that's intimidating. If you've read his books, you know exactly why. He knows your intentions. He knows the subtle uh, things behind questions. And so I I had a bold ask. I wanted to get into the new book for sure. But quite frankly, you know, if you want to learn about the new book, I'm sure he's done another podcast. What I wanted to dig in instead is take a look at his work and understanding the laws of human nature and apply it to really adolescence, right? So middle school, high school, maybe even in your early 20s. Because I I think uh, this is such a unique time for them. And this guy is so well-versed, so well-researched on how we interact and how we read body language that I thought this was really an important time to uh, almost dedicate this one to, to students. However, by no means is this interview just for adolescents. There is just a ton of information on narcissism, on understanding body language, on you know how to find mentors, um, that this is just an amazing episode. Also, uh, Robert was kind enough. Uh, he had offered uh, to give away a signed copy. So if you are interested in that, email me, don at startedupinnovation.com. I will have a link in the podcast notes. So, yes, if you want a signed copy of his new book, please email me. Lastly, if you have any recommendations on people we should have on the show, please email me as well. We like to keep this show going, and we have grown exponentially because of suggestions of who we should have on the show, introductions on who we should have on the show, and just sharing the episodes means the world to us. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. All right, this is one that I have been nervous about and just excited about and releasing. So please enjoy this one. The author of five New York Times bestselling books, Robert Greene. All right, now I'm joined with Robert Greene. His new book, The Laws of Human Nature, is out and available. I am honored and flattered. Robert, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Don. My pleasure. Without a doubt, I want to get a little bit into your new book, but I also kind of want to go over this through the lens of, you know, middle school and high school students. Uh-huh. I know you've done a ton of interviews about a, a lot of your books. And, and so would kindly ask people if you, if you want to know the, you know, the 40 year old version, you can check out a lot of Robert's work there. Um, but today we're going to try it a little bit um, through the lens of, of uh, middle school and high school students. Okay. As well. 
All right. So let's get into the, the book, the first of all, Laws of Human Nature. In a very similar format, you have kind of a historical look at uh, a law, and then you go into some of the heavy research. One of the things I truly enjoyed is that towards the beginning of the book, you, you kind of get into the different levels of narcissism. So yeah. I've got, <laughs> was that just coincidence on some of the people that we're really starting to focus in on politically that are on the narcissism spectrum? Or was this something you've been wanting to write about for a while? It, that's a good question. It was a bit of a coincidence. You know, as I was writing the book, the election was stored, sort of forming and, and Trump was just beginning to emerge. Um, and so, yeah, that was a little bit in my mind because love him or hate him, you'd have to admit that he definitely falls on the narcissistic spectrum. But really the point of that chapter and the point of the book is that when it comes to qualities like narcissism or irrationality or envy or aggression, our first tendency is to point fingers at other people and say that, well, that person is irrational, that person's a narcissist, and to never admit that we have the same tendencies. And it's odd to me because we are all evolved from the same small group of early hominids. All of our brains are wired similarly We've evolved in the same process. So why would it be that some individuals are suddenly narcissistic, a small percentage, and the rest of us aren't? And I went deeply into the research, um, a lot of great psychologists and neuroscientists. And my conclusion is that we are all on the spectrum. We are all by nature self-absorbed. And I explained why that is. I explained that from very early childhood, we need to have attention and recognition and validation from other people. And since we can't get that from everyone all the time, we develop a sense of self-love and self-esteem to protect us in those moments when we feel weak or insecure. And so we, by nature, have to become self-absorbed to some extent. But some people are what I call deep narcissists. They have, they have the inability to create a self that they can love because of their parenting or other problems that they were abandoned as children. And so they desperately need to get attention and validation from other people. They can't get it from themselves. And so they're the ones that are constantly acting out, being overly dramatic, and are just hungry, constantly hungry for attention. And we've all known these types, and we see them all the time on social media. But I want to emphasize to you that you, the listener out there, you have the same tendencies. And at moments in your life, you are going to become more self-absorbed than other moments. And so it's not that some we want to point fingers and say, these people are ugly, they're narcissists. It's a tendency that's deeply wired into human nature. Well, I think you also went into a really good explanation of the different spectrum. I mean, I like, I agree. I was listening to that and and there are times where I was like, okay, I am that guy or, okay, I'm guilty of that. Even though I don't like that in other people, I'm guilty of that. And reading it, especially, I think there's a section where he called it like the, 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 the helpful narcissist or the yeah. kind, I forget what it would exactly. The healthy was. narcissist. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I think, and again, depending on which team you play for, and by team, unfortunately, we're so politically polarized, but you know, that good quality some people see in our president is because they're like, okay, he's gathering attention. He's standing for what's right. And of course, the opposite is therefore true. 
But I agree. Some of the people that are calling things out of like, well, you're just being so narcissistic. Make sure I get this on every platform and make sure my voice is a little louder. Acknowledging that as narcissism. Right. Be done too. No, I, I think that that was such a awakening moment. So my, in dealing with students, right? So right. we're constantly telling them to find their voice. We're constantly telling them to stand up for what they believe in. That healthy narcissism uh, part of your chapter is what really stood out to me. If you're talking to a teen right now, what is a definition, a quick definition of healthy narcissism? Well, the healthy narcissist has a degree of self-love and self-esteem so that they don't need to constantly be fishing for attention from other people. And how do you achieve that? Um, I maintain that you achieve it in one of two ways or hopefully by both. The first is by pouring your energy into your work, getting outside of yourself and your self, normal self-absorption and pouring your energies into a task if you're a student, it could be writing a paper. It could be, you know, becoming a better student. It could be learning some new skills, getting outside of yourself and pouring that energy into, into your work, into accomplishing something. The second thing, the second way of getting outside of yourself is through empathy, by trying to understand on a, more, on a deeper level the people around you. So to take just one example, perhaps you have conflicts with your parents and you, you find them too different and alien from how you're thinking and you're, you're angry and frustrated with them, to take a step back and try and put yourself in their shoes and try and understand perhaps where they come from and how they have a very different perspective from yours and get out of your normal locked self-absorption position where you think that everything you're doing is right, that everything that everybody else is doing is wrong. So learning to get outside of yourself is the antidote to deep narcissism. So the healthy narcissist can pour his or her energies into work, into making things, and into social relationships and understanding people on a deeper level. I love that. Although I will, I will say, though, sometimes just having them observe, trying not to, that un, how do I say it, um, that confirmation bias. That as they're wanting to look for a different opinion, they're still weighing it and they're still judging it through their own confirmation bias is a very difficult thing. I mean, definitely in the middle school age, that'd be tough. Um, one of the things I liked, I think it was two chapters later, that the, um, the gentleman who was paralyzed and could yeah. only observe, man, that's one. That's something I like about your research. You're pulling out things from history or different people that I've never heard of before. But uh -huh. the gentleman, yeah, he was paralyzed. The only thing he could do was observe his sisters, and he started picking up on those nonverbal cues. That right. was that was amazing. Um, so, a, a practical um, things like I guess to create that empathy, maybe for them just to observe, not intervene yet. Yes, that's a major theme in the book: is transforming yourself into a sub superior observer of people. And I mean this, that this is probably one of the most important life skills that you can develop it. Consider it as important as your chemistry class or your English paper is learning to observe people. And that is not nearly as easy as you think, because when you're interacting with your friends or whomever, you're normally listening to this kind of monologue inside of yourself, or you're absorbed in your, in your smartphone and you're thinking your own thoughts. And if you really honestly spent um, half an hour next time you're, you're interacting with friends or whomever, 
actually trying to observe them without hearing that interior monologue, you will be shocked at what you will, you will glean from that. You will suddenly see things that you've been ignoring for years. You will suddenly understand patterns of nonverbal communication. Because if you're sitting there staring at your smartphone, you're not really looking at people and picking up all of the cues they're giving out. And people give out all kinds of cues as to their real feelings, their desires, what they resent, what they love through their, through their nonverbal behavior, through their body posture, through the way they smile, through their eyes. And I literally give you um, an instruction manual about how to get rid of that self-absorption and really, really finally begin to observe the people around you. I can't emphasize enough what an important life skill that is. Oh, I cannot agree more. And that's one thing that scares me about, you know, like we can't hear enough, like last minute, last night on 60 Minutes, even talk about the new correlation between anxiety, depression, and people on their devices. Right. Just picking up of these nonverbal cues, just interpersonal relationships is so in need because you can't, the subtle nuances of a text message can be whatever you interpret it. You know, something is accidentally written in all caps. You feel like they're screaming at you or something of this nature. It's, it's a, it's a scary time, which is, I agree. I, I, well, we had talked prior before the show about what my class is. And I think it's one of the things I enjoy is that, you know, we give some time to those things, whether it's the nonverbals, the soft skills, because I, it's just fading. Um, and it's, it's frightening to me. Um, one thing that also did jump out to me because like yeah. in some ways chapter 14 the antidote for that was chapter 15 but I want to get into this the the resist the downward pull of the group and I understood that and without a doubt I think that we're in the epicenter of bad group think identity yeah but knowing that I work with um, high school students and even worse would be the group think of, of middle school students do do the kids that age need to go through that though? Do they need to be a part of the downward pole of the group to then rise above it later? Or could you work with a student and then have them identify the pros and cons early on? Well, that's a very good, that's a great question. And there's, there's, it's a bit complicated, but first of all, I think obviously it is a phase of life that is inevitable. Um, when you're an adolescent, when you're 14, 15 years old, you're searching to create your own identity separate from your parents. And that's a very healthy process to go through. And naturally, you're going to rebel a little bit, and you're going to look towards your peers for finding your own identity. So when you're in that age group, you are naturally much more attentive to what other people around you are saying, how they dress, the music they like. And I don't think there's any way to get out of that. And I think it's important to admit that we all went through that process, including myself. But it comes with a danger. Um, it comes with the danger that at a critical other moment in life, which I would point to as being maybe around the age of 21, maybe 18 to 21, you need to form an identity that is particular to you. You need to find out what makes you different, what makes you unique. And you've become someone who's constantly listening to other people, to your peers, to your teachers, to rebelling against your parents or listening to them, and you lose a sense of what makes you different. And I make a very strong point in this book, in one chapter, and in Mastery, that your strength in life when you get older, when you get into your 20s, 
is precisely your uniqueness, what makes you different from other people, those skills, those interests that completely set you apart. And I have many, many examples of great people in history, geniuses, inventors, great business people, artists, and every single one of them you have to point to and say, there's nobody else like them out there. They are unique. They didn't run away from what makes them different. And a lot of people in adolescence begin, are terrified about what makes them different or stand out or makes them quote unquote weird. They want to be just like everyone else. They want to seem normal. It's understandable. But if you must think of it this in this way, the source of your power in life comes from that what makes you different, what sets you apart. And you and believe me, your DNA is something that nobody else has. Your brain is wired in a totally different way. Your experience is unique. That is the source of your power. And as you drift away from that, and as you become more like other people, as you listen to everybody else, that power slowly diminishes to the point where you can be in your 20s and you've completely lost touch with it. And you end up going into careers and making decisions that have nothing to do with what really interests you. So in the one hand, it's understandable you go through this phase, and we all do, and it's, and it's understandable. On the other hand, it comes with great dangers, and I point those out in this new book. Uh, I, I, I love that answer. The only thing that concerns me is, is that I see people gravitating to people that are originals, but then try to imitate the originals and not being original. Like I'm, I'm looking over all the different YouTube trends, right? So yeah. right now, the people, the more outrageous, the people that are more insulting, the more the people that drop f, f bombs the most, the people that are eating Tide Pods, etc. Wow, that's that's unusual. That's a different twist on being ironic. I'm going to do that, and then no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. That's not oh, what I know. I'm saying. I know. I, I know it's not. But I think that that's that's what they're gravitating to is finding an original and trying to be them without trying to be them, and that's what's that's the frightening thing I see with this age group is that um, that originality isn't original. And, and through the amplification yeah. of a lot of social media outlets, they feel as though they are, but they're not, they're not ever being themselves. Well, think of it this way. If you, let's say you want to be an artist or you want to be a writer or make a film or whatever, if you simply follow what other people are doing on YouTube and um, what you see out there on social media, you might get some attention for a day or two or a week or whatever, but it'll generally be forgotten quite quickly because it doesn't stand out. It's not different. It's not unique enough for people to really go and say, wow, this person is interesting. I'm gonna give them money for their next project. So you're destroying any chance you have of being truly, truly creative. And so, it's not easy what I'm talking about. I don't mean to make it seem that way. But it's a process of looking inward and saying, I'm not going to make something or say or do something just because that's what other people are doing, just because that's what's popular. In fact, if you looked at what everyone else is doing on YouTube and you decided to do something completely different because it's really who you are and you're really kind of disgusted with all of the conformity, you will probably get more, much more interesting attention by going against the trends of the times and going against what everybody else is doing. Um, but as I said, it's not easy. It's a process that takes years. You can't hurry it up. And it means 
looking at yourself constantly and, and trying to figure out what separates you. What is the viewpoint? What is your experience in life? What is it that you have done and experienced with your family, with your friends, that is not like what other people are going through? And to mine that uniqueness um, is, is absolutely critical. No, I totally 100% agree with you. Matter of fact, one of the things that we do early on in this class, I'm like, the students that go through this program all on the way out give the same exit interview. Find out what you truly love and then yeah. work on that. And, and But that's the hard part. Like finding out, because so oftentimes kids in education will like, what do you like, Mr. Wetrick? And I'll, is, like, as long as you give me an A, I will do what you like. And it was hard because I think this class is now like seven, half, eight years old. Um, that was the difficult thing, finding what that was. The next step then was deliberately trying to not only find out what you were passionate about, but then actually do the work. And that was the the difficult part because saying that, well, you know, kind of like the New Year's resolution, it is fun to say that I'm going to lose 15 pounds. It's really going to be hard doing it. And so I think that the, the students that want to kind of find that passion, we have also talked ourselves into circles about what we're passionate about in certain areas, but then the doing part is, is a tough. And so. Well, if you, yeah. Well, if you're truly passionate about something, if it really, really matters to you, you will find a way to do the work. But the problem that a lot of adolescents have or people of that age group is that they are deathly afraid of failure and the ridicule that yes. comes with it, because that will make them stand out in the group and people will point fingers. And so it's a lot easier to not try anything and to simply say, oh, I can't do it. Right. Then you're never going to fail. No one will ever criticize you. Or but be an actually, armchair quarterback. What's that? Or be an armchair quarterback. You know, right. well, you did it wrong. And, and I agree. And, and that's why I, I look at education and say guilty is charged because that whole they're afraid of failure. That's partly on us. Right. As an educator. That's why we decided to start this kind of odd kind of class where they self-reflected and they graded themselves by and large because that I don't want to try it because I might fail. I want you to fail to see what happened. I want you to put yourself in social situations that will make you stretch because if I, you know, they got to be, well, now I can't get into that famous college. And that's what I'm trying to work against. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's important in these early years is to develop some discipline. Um, so it doesn't mean that you have to know when you're 17 exactly what you're going to do in life. That's extremely rare, and it's not really that important to know to have that clarity. But what's really clear is to very much develop what I call life skills. And one life skill is to not be afraid of practice, of discipline, of learning something and failing and having to repeat it over and over until you get better at it. And if you look at anyone successful, I wrote a book with the rapper 50 Cent, for example, or even anybody in pop culture of Beyonce or, or Michael Jackson to go back a few years. All you see is the fame, the, the, the stuff that's so dazzling and exciting. But what you don't see is the years and years of grinding and practice, of working hard, of having a, a sense of, of a conscientious discipline and diligence. And so if you're young, you know, it's not easy to have that discipline if you're doing something that you hate. If you hate algebra, you're not going to be able to practice it. If you hate music, the same thing. So it's important to find some field that attracts you 
and to be able to now discipline yourself. Think of it that all the other people around you are wasting time on video games and listening to what other people are doing in social media. In 10, 20 years, they're going to be lost and they're going to have a lot of problems in life, no matter how popular they are now. But you, you, the, the enlightened listener out there, you were saying to yourself, I'm not going to fall into that trap. I'm going to see something that really excites me and I'm going to develop the ability to yeah. practice and put up with boredom and tedium. Mm. And if you can do that, then when you're in your 20s, life will become so much easier. And something, I promise you, something great will come from it. But you have to be willing to put in the hours to, be, to fail, to have criticism, etc. cetera, or, or none of this will matter. I... That, that that tease right up right next to then the, the chapter after that, um, that when you have that purpose, make them want to follow you. And, and I think this is the distinct difference between follow me and I'll crack a you know hammer over my skull or please see the good in the world that I'm doing. So it'll inspire you to do other good. Like I, every Christmas time YouTube is filled and I'm actually okay with this, but there's a lot of YouTube content, a lot of Facebook content of, the guy with the hidden camera giving Christmas gifts to the homeless. Now, whether it's genuine, whether it's staged, I don't know. But a lot of times that feeling that it creates of, you know, I'm going to go out and do something nice. Or there's like a, a famous commercial from like five years ago. I think it was a traveler's insurance that it starts off by somebody holding the door. And then that person goes and that next person goes and they're empathetic. Uh, and, and this is actually one of the things I want to get to as well. Like I, I always fear that sometimes your work might be misinterpreted on how to manipulate versus how to lead. And so that make them want to follow you in going through the lens of middle school, high school students, what would be a way for them to set themselves up for uh, the servant's heart uh, that would make one of kids follow them at this young of age? It's by the example that you set. I mean, um, I call this the chapter about authority and uh, we've all experienced this around certain people. Um, it could be a teacher, or it could be a parent, or it could even be a peer. This person commands respect. I and other people don't command respect. And what are those qualities that command respect? Well, first of all, it comes from a sense of inner security. So the key to all of this is to embrace yourself and to accept and love who you are and what makes you different and to get rid of some of the continual self-criticism and doubts that you might have. And if you're able to cultivate that quality in yourself, particularly through your work, through actually making things and accomplishing things, people will respect you and they'll want to follow you. So you set an example. If other people are extremely narcissistic and, and they're kind of embroiled and caught up in that, in that YouTube social media world, you stand apart by doing something for the community or whatever it is without getting hokey, you actually start some kind of business or some kind of cause. Believe me, there's so many problems in the world right now. Something that other people aren't doing or aren't paying attention to that's in your community. And you're going to start something on your own. Maybe you'll get other students to follow you. But it, it is something unique. It is something different. And it's something you love and really believe in. And um, by starting this and, and having 
revealing to people that you're, it is something sincere, that you have integrity, that's an important belief of yours, you will find followers, um, despite all the cynicism of, the, of a lot of the people around you. I maintain that a lot of people are really, really tired of all of the cynicism and, you know, the, the kind of, well, nothing really matters anymore. I'm just going to have fun and make a YouTube video. People really, really want to be accomplishing and contributing to their community or whatever it is. If you can find a way to tap that energy among your peers by some new cause or something you create, you will find followers. Yeah, I see that more and more with the people that are making difference. And quite frankly, they're happier. Uh, the the person right. that's always wanting to get attention for sake of irony or cynicism or just constantly in a state of argument. And that, that's one thing I truly, truly I'm concerned about now and the polarization that we're in. The I'm going to convince other people that they're wrong leads, it's not going to lead to your happiness. And right. um, as opposed to your actions uh, and doing things that, that feel good uh, because you're helping others, I think is, is something that I'm, I'm always trying to get my own personal children and my students to look forward to. Um, <laughs> three last questions that I've looked forward to asking you for a while. Sure. Um, who was your favorite teacher and why? Or who was your least favorite teacher, but what did they bring to you? Two teachers, probably the most important was my high school English teacher, Mr. Smith. Um, and I cannot, I can remember very vividly. I might've been 15 years old at the time I was in his English class and I wrote a paper that I thought was just the greatest thing. Uh, I fancied myself as being this brilliant writer, even at the, that early age. And he came back and he gave me a terrible grade. I can't remember what it was like a C or C minus. And he criticized the hell out of it. And basically his point was, this was self-absorbed writing. You were saying things just for the sake of hearing your own words and imagining that you were eloquent and articulate, but you weren't proving your point. You weren't saying anything important. You had lost a sense of, of what the thesis was of this particular paper, and you were just trying to impress with your language. And boy, was that a wake-up call, something I've never, ever forgotten and I've never gotten over because it meant, yeah, what is the point of writing? Is the point just kind of, you know, getting out your feelings and your emotions and trying to impress people? Or was it to actually state an idea and prove it to people and change their minds about something? Are you going to think about yourself and the attention you want? Or are you going to think about the reader who was reading this and try to you know, make your point. And that was a life turning moment for me. Mm. And um, I'm very grateful for how deeply he criticized me on that paper. Um, you know, I think it forever changed how I approached writing. So he was probably my favorite teacher, if I had to point that out. And then later in life, it's not a teacher, but I had, I was a journalist in, in New York and I wrote an article I thought it was pretty good. It was pretty good. And then the editor took me out to lunch and he was getting kind of drunk. And he started saying, this was the worst article I've ever seen. You are not a good writer. He was basically telling me I should go to law school. I didn't have a future. And I left that thinking, 
this guy is actually really wrong. I, I felt first very wounded, but then my self-esteem kicked in and I go, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad writer. It just means that I'm not writing for the right circles. I haven't found what I was meant to do yet, but I'm not going to doubt myself. And the anger that he gave me for, for being so petty um, has fueled, fueled me for years to come that I was going to prove this a-hole wrong about his, <laughs> his assessment of my skills. So those were two extremely important moments in my life. I love that story. I had a very similar college professor and he was borderline. It just was some of the comments he gave were mean, but I just, despite him, I'm like, I'm going to write the greatest thing you've ever seen. And you're going to, of course he, you know, he kind of acknowledged it later, but uh, similar experience. Uh, oh, speaking, yeah. yeah. <laughs> speaking of the college um, experience, uh, Ryan holiday has very, um, you know, several times publicly talked about his journey going from college and then, you know, reaching out to you and, and wanting for you know, to mentor yeah. him. Uh, what is it you saw in Ryan that made you go, you know what? Yeah, I, I cause you know, I'm sure that you were already established writer. You get these offers all the time. What made him stand out? Well, it's a good question. And I maintain in my book mastery that it's very important if you're young and you're excited by a particular field and you, you have ambition to find a mentor in life, somebody who can guide you and give you the kind of advice that will make you not make the usual mistakes that people make when they're young. And so Ryan came to me when he must have been about 19 years old. He was going to college and he was working at a talent agency. And it's not that I'm so perceptive that in my first meeting with him, I judged that this kid was, was brilliant. He, he loved my books and everything, and he was flattering me. But what I did was I gave him a test. I decided I would give him a, an assignment to do some research and see how he came through. And um, I do that a lot with people. Um, and usually uh, I'm not very impressed they don't really think deeply about the subject. They don't take initiative. So Ryan impressed me by the fact that he didn't just do the task, read the book and write a report as if, you know, just sort of going through the motions. He actually thought very deeply about, this was the book that I was writing about war and strategy. He thought very deeply about what kind of book I was writing. And he came up with some ideas that were unique. He took some initiative. And that's a very interesting quality to find in someone that you're going to that you're going to teach that you're going to mentor. Um, they're not just simply listening to what you say, but they're taking it in on a deeper level. They're not just mimicking or imitating you and trying to please you. They're actually there to try and help you and save you time, because that's what makes someone a really good person to mentor. They understand that you're have your own life, that you have your own problems and your stresses and you're busy, and they want to help you and save you time and make your task easier. So I understood that he had in those qualities, and I have a chapter in my new book about people's character. And what I look for in someone like that, and Ryan displayed, is character. In other words, someone who's kind of strong, who can take criticism, who can listen deeply to what you say, as opposed to the other person who's just trying to please and flatter you to get the job. So that's what really impressed me with Ryan. 
was that he had character qualities that I could work with. I could feel like I could criticize him and teach him without him getting personal. As a teacher who also uh, wants the students to work with other people, I'm inspired by that. Um, lastly, what is your, um, like, if you had to create right now an inaugural Robert Greene scholarship, what kind of student would you want to be accepted and what would be the criteria? There's so many, there's so much kind of unoriginal, uncreative work out there. And people who are afraid to kind of step out and be different. So um, I would be looking for someone who has a unique vision about what they want to accomplish, about what they want to do in their next step in life, perhaps a project. I want to see a mix of two qualities, practicality and vision or uh, imagination. So I want someone who's able to think on a level of this is something that interests me, something I want to build or create. And I can tell that it's personal, that it comes from deep within and that they love it. And it's, it's interesting. It, I might find it not something I want or, or, or what I would ever want to do, but I recognize that it is unique and that they're very sincere about it. And then I want to see that they're practical, that they have those life skills that I was talking about. There's not somebody who just talks and talks and talks, but that they actually have a vision for how to create it. And I don't care if that person, the level of education that they have, I don't care if they're not someone who reads or who's very good at school. If they have those two qualities, I would give them a very large scholarship and support them and try and be the, a mentor to them. So I think those would be what I would look for. I mean, I could get more specific, but that, those would be sort of the qualities I would look for. I, I love that in the sense that I couldn't agree more. Um, in a lot of the things that I've taken from your books and a lot of the, the you know stories I've kind of heard, it doesn't surprise me that's what you're looking for. But two, that whole, because you've, you've showcased what you were as a mentor, um, it means a lot, but it's also kind of that mindset you're wanting others to create. Uh, and, and for a matter of fact, I, I guess that's the last kind of question. If, if you're a high school student right now, your best advice to become like, you know, chapter 15, how, how do they fall in love with you? How do you, you know, stand out? Because like, I, I hear about it, like, I guess Tom Bill, you says he gets it all the time. People reach out to him. Will you mentor me? Will you mentor me? Uh, successful people are getting this all the time. So if you're looking for a mentor as a high school student, what should you do to prepare yourself to find that key person? Getting outside of yourself. So a lot of people, when they're looking for a mentor or a teacher or someone to help them, they're too self-absorbed. They're thinking of their own idea of, of the attention that they want, of the validation they want from other people. They think that their ideas are brilliant or whatever. And I want you to flip this around and I want you to make this part of your approach to everything in life. So you're looking for someone, you have a project you want to build or make, and you identify a person out there that you think would be the best sort of mentor for you. And if you to help you in that process, I would recommend reading chapter three in my book, Mastery, in which I discuss it. So there is an art to finding the right person. But let us say you identify the person you want to be your mentor. 
do some research and find out what they're going through, what their life is like, any articles or material you can find on what their struggles have been and um, get to know them on a deeper level. And then think of what is it that I could offer him as a young person that maybe he or she can't really get on their own. How can I save this person time? How can I make them look better? How can I make them, you know, um, do their work better? Um, being a mentor, talking about myself, is a very satisfying role to play. It's like being a parent. And there's a lot of um, enriching emotions that pass through both sides. Um, but, you know, so it's extremely important to find that person. But if you are able to think inside their life what they need, believe me, you will stand out from other people. Um, you know, it's it, everybody, even in, who's powerful or who has success, has a lot of stress and a lot of problems that they're facing. If you're able to kind of alleviate them in some degree, to some degree, just, just by organizing their office for them, for instance, being organized. And the other thing is, for instance, I can speak personally being an older person. I'm not extremely adept when it comes to the internet and social media. In fact, I'm rather kind of stupid at it. And so Ryan, one of the great things about Ryan was he was able to cover up that weakness of mine. He was brilliant when it came to the internet and social media. So he was able to help me in some area that I couldn't. So you, being younger, you probably have those kind of skills, and you could offer that to someone who's older, who's probably not nearly as good at it as you are. So those would be the things. Get outside of yourself and thinking about what you want, and think about the person that you want to impress and get you to become the, to become your mentor. Well, I like that you started off with that commonality. Um, we took a field trip once uh, to a really cool company. Um, and one thing that one of the guys there said, he's like, wow, you guys remind me of myself, except you have a, a cool head start by the projects you're working on. And he said, if there's anything I can do to help you, let me know. And that just stood out to me because I was thinking, wow, the first thing he said is you remind me of myself. So automatically, hey, he had his like sense of self already wrapped up and the what could I have done if I would have had the head start mentality. And then the second part you made is, yeah, I mean, like giving them value, a letting them look like the champions that they are, you know, they don't want to, you know, even if it's just to feel good, uh, give them a reason. But that pre work ahead of time is so important. Just right. going and yelling at somebody like you need to be my mentor or my least favorite uh, term. Can I pick your brain, which is right, right, another right. way of saying, can I rob two hours from you and give you nothing in return? Right. Um, I, I'm begging more students to, to do that. Think of it, if you're trying to impress somebody who's older, who might be able to help you in, in your career, what you want to impress them with is not your charm, your smile, with your wit and all that. What you want to impress them with is your discipline, your eagerness, your wanting to learn, your openness to learning and to helping them. And if you can demonstrate that, then you might not always get the job or the mentor, but you'll increase your chances by tenfold. The other thing to keep in mind is a person like myself in, in this particular position actually wants to have a mentee, wants to have somebody who will help him 
and that we'll, we'll develop this kind of relationship. So don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid of approaching people who you think are powerful, but only approach them after having done some research, yes. thought it through and have a plan of action, a strategic approach, whether that be, let me buy you lunch, as you said, and figure out how I can help you, or to actually figuring out how you can help them. Keeping in mind two things, your youth and your enthusiasm is something that a lot of older people don't have. You can supply that. Yeah. The thing is your understanding of trends that are going on in people your age. And a lot of people in business, for instance, don't have that. And number three, your knowledge of social media and technology, which a lot of older people don't have. These are three things you can supply if you're, if you're you know, careful and and know how to do it and approach the person that they are missing and they will be very happy and excited to have you bring a skill that they don't have. I I appreciate you taking when heck we're coming full circle. I appreciate you uh, responding to me via social media. Um, And that uh, on behalf of just teachers everywhere, the fact that you have been an educator, the fact that you have been mentoring people, the fact that you're writing about the human condition uh, I sincerely, sincerely want to want to thank you for your work and, and your willingness to, to come on the show. Oh, thank you, Don. It was a real pleasure. I enjoyed the interview. All right. Thanks so much. 